find in the Gospel of St. Mark, chapter 8, coming this morning to verses uh, 27 through 33. Mark, chapter 8, beginning in verse 27, let us hear and attend to the word of God. Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And we'll end our reading of the Holy Scriptures there this morning. Please be seated. When Jesus asked the disciples and us who the world says he is, and then again who we say he is, straight talk about Jesus Christ has reached his climax. That's what we've entitled the exposition of the book of Mark, straight talk about Jesus Christ. And I want you to see this climax here in the narrative. What follows in the gospel of Mark from the balance of chapter 8 on to the end of Mark's gospel is the record of Scripture more fully revealing, as Jesus does, the solution to the gospel paradox. How do we come to a solution of this gospel paradox? And you may be asking, what is the gospel paradox? That will become more apparent as we go through this text. But the solution to the gospel paradox is the content of the faith, what we must believe, and the means of resolve, that is to say, saving faith, the act of believing. You cannot believe anything that you want to about Jesus and be saved by him. That's a message that needs to be declared far and wide. You cannot believe anything that you wish, whatever your private opinions are about Jesus, whatever others say about Jesus, whatever the world wants to say about. You cannot believe anything you want to about who Jesus Christ is and be saved by him. We've been apart from the Gospel of Mark for a few weeks And we're returning this morning, so let me remind you here in chapter 8 where we're at and what we're talking about here. In chapter 8, the gospel paradox in this sin-fallen world demands faith in divine providence integral to the salvation of the world. And progressive revelation recorded in Holy Scripture. And predictive prophecy terminating in Christ's new covenant gospel and promised gospel consummation to the glory of God. And here's why we say that, verses 1 through 10. Jesus' miraculous feeding of the 4,000 plus people in Gentile territory. This story not to be confused with his previous feeding of the 5,000 plus. Different account altogether, and in a different place. Specifically in Gentile territory here, further demonstrating God's providence integral to the salvation of the world. You need to be reminded of that. As a matter of fact, one of the things I've said in terms of the public worship of God is that we're reminded every Lord's Day that we come into worship that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And we mustn't forget that. 
In verses 11 through 26, Jesus healing a blind man in two stages. Uh, The only recorded event in, in Scripture of his doing a staged healing. This provides another gospel object lesson about the need to understand the progressive revelation of Scripture in order to avoid the spread of false teaching and corruptive influences that spread like leaven or yeast. And that's the example that Jesus used, like the the spreading of the Pharisees or Herod's club and their uh, influences that were uh, false teaching. And then in verses 27 through 33, we come this morning to Jesus commending Peter's Christocentric, Christ-centered confession, and then consequently rebuking Peter's confusion from satanic influence. This establishes the gospel hermeneutic. What do we mean by that? The interpretive method, how we're to understand what the progressive revelation of Scripture is about, and even in terms of predictive prophecy, that it terminates, it finds its meaning, it finds its goal and purpose in Christ's new covenant fulfillment. So we look this morning at this broader passage, verses 27 through 33, and looking at verses 27 and 28, the gospel paradox exists because of who Jesus Christ is. Look at verses 27 and 28. Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? Now they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others say one of the prophets. Uh, You should know about this Caesarea Philippi. Uh, There were other cities, or at least another city that was named after Caesar, but this one particularly was a pagan city of worldly renewal. It had been uh, spruced up and made a showplace in dedication to the emperor Caesar by Herod the Great, and then following that, his son, Philip, further renovated the city and wanted to make it, again, a showcase dedicated to Caesar Augustus. It was a pagan city, and it went through worldly renewal. Does that sound familiar to you? The world is always in an attempt at renewal and to transform its identity, but it makes the same mistakes over and over. This was a pagan city dedicated to pagan worship and to pagan false gods. Jesus is in the region, in the neighborhood of the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And in the midst of his ongoing public ministry, Jesus asked, what is the buzz about his public notoriety? Who do people say that I am? And Jesus' public notoriety, as told by the disciples, illustrates the confusion of biblical ideas and man-made superstitions so often sensationalized by misguided prophetic expectations. If you'll remember back in chapter 6, what had uh, Herod become so disturbed about in the, the uh, notoriety and the word that he was getting about what Jesus was doing? Oh, John the Baptist has come back from the dead to haunt me. Filled with superstition, but with some sense of biblical idea of expectation. And so the, some people say, oh, it's Elijah come back because of the prophecy of Malachi that Elijah must come as the forerunner of the Lord and Anon, Jesus is going to tell us about the fulfillment of that. But here, people are speculating and are all wrapped up in this biblical idea, oh, Elijah's coming back, and they are sensational prophecies, and and they captivate their attention and their information that spreads and says, oh, he's one of the prophets, like one of the prophets that have come back, and chiefly regarding Moses. And so there was all this speculation that was tied up with 
some biblical ideas, but superstitions about prophecy. And once again, I must tell you, that's not unlike what we often hear today. Whenever you hear these prophetic speculations that do not center and do not terminate in the finished work of Jesus Christ and His gospel and His power to save, when they're all tied up with a, a tract of land in the Middle East or the rebuilding of a temple that Jesus said was destroyed and will never be rebuilt because we are a living temple. There's a new temple and there's a new way of worshiping God. Why don't we hear what Jesus said? What Jesus said to the, the Samaritan woman. There is now a new way of worshiping God. Not in Mount Gerizim nor in Jerusalem. But God is seeking people everywhere to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And so Jesus reveals to us, terminating in the new covenant gospel, what that new temple is of the worshipers of God. And it's a worldwide salvation. It's not bound to one region or land or people. And we need to focus on this. This is what I mean by the the hermeneutic, the interpretive method that we receive from the gospel. Answering that paradox is what interprets the meaning of prophecy for us. It is God's salvation. Jesus is the Savior of the world, but God's way. In verse 29, we read, And he, Jesus, said, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. You know that Christ means anointed one, Messiah uh, in Old Testament. The anointed one, the prophetically revealed and scripturally recorded divine messenger of the covenant, who is the deliverer, the savior of the worldwide people of God. That's what's packed into Peter's confession that you are the anointed one of God. You are the promised Messiah. So confessing Jesus to be the Christ by true saving faith does not mean intellectually understanding everything about him and his saving work. It's not instantaneous. We don't download the Jesus chip. There are things you don't understand about who Jesus is and his saving work. I'm still learning. I'm still deeply going into the wonder of the Holy Scriptures. I'm still seeking out and and desiring to know more. When I go into the Old Covenant, particularly into uh, the the codes of the law and the, the law given and administered through Moses, I'm not interested in trying to bring that to enforce to bear what Peter said. Neither we nor our ancestors could keep those things. I'm interested in what it reveals to me about Christ. In, in the book of Hebrews, Jesus is the veil. By his incarnation. The veil that separates the holy place from the most holy place. And what we have revealed to us in Revelation. Is that Jesus is resurrected and ascended and glorified above. And he is the transcending veil by whom we come to the Father and before the throne of grace. What a beautiful and wonderful fulfillment. And and, um, it's descriptive in such magnificent ways. More and more to know, to search out who Jesus is and his saving work. And so, having and confessing Jesus as Christ in true saving faith doesn't mean that we automatically and immediately understand intellectually everything about Him and His saving work. But we continue to grow and be enamored and wrapped in wonder and long for the things that Paul says are awaiting where Jesus is exalted at the right hand of the Father. So we come to verses 30 through 31. 
Jesus identifies essential Christian theological truths that must be believed. No, we, we don't know everything. We don't intellectually understand and grasp and, and exhaust everything about who Jesus is and his saving work. We celebrate it. We rejoice in it. We confess it. But there are essential things in reference to theological truths that we must believe about who Christ is. And we must confess that these essential theological facts form the gospel paradox. Look at verses 30 and 31. Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So Jesus charged the disciples with a limited prohibition. You may wonder, why does Jesus tell them not to tell anybody? Other times, Jesus strictly warned others, or even the demons, who came and confessed, you are the Holy One of God, be quiet. Or the man from we learned earlier, whom he delivered from many demons, he said, go to your family, go to your, to your home, tell them about what great mercy the Lord has had on you. So we have to follow these things through and, and see them within their context. And here, Jesus charged the disciples with a limited prohibition restricting their zeal without knowledge. They needed to learn more. They needed to be quiet and listen. They would need more founding in the faith to resolve even for themselves the gospel paradox. And this is immediately demonstrated by Peter's confusion. So Jesus initiated the initial teachings and doctrines of the New Covenant gospel, repeatedly summarized and expounded throughout the New Testament scriptures. What are these essential gospel truths that theologically based reveal to us God and his way of salvation? What must be believed? Well, Paul writes in Romans 10 that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made into salvation as it is written as it is written from Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah 52, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. I thought it was interesting this morning in our Sunday school on a series from Dr. Sproul, the late Dr. Sproul, who now has wonders of glory revealed to him that we await. He was talking about this passage and how in olden days they didn't have the immediate kind of uh, news and uh, uh, media to give information like we live today. And so messengers were sent. And sometimes it was over a prolonged period of time. Maybe there was a, a warring uh, faction going on and, and for years it was taking place. And then a messenger comes. And Dr. Sproul went on to talk about how even the, the demeanor of the messenger, the runner, uh, could it, telegraph what, what kind of news it might be. Uh, so he gave a wonderful description of that. But more importantly, how it is we're to celebrate even the humble things like the feet of the messenger who faithfully come to us to declare the good news, the glad tidings, the salvation of the Lord. And then... Not only in Romans 10, but also in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, I declare to you, that is to the, to the visible church, I declare to you the gospel, the good news, the glad tidings, which I preached to you by God's appointed means of preaching. For I delivered to you, first of all, 
in priority that which I also received, not of my own. I'm a messenger. That Christ died for our sins. Here's the essential theological teaching that elaborates from what Jesus has just said. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. From 2 Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy, a young pastor, directing him on his course of ministry. Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things, all these wonderful and deep things of God. But remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. Essential to proclaiming the gospel. It's not just with Paul. Peter, who is present even and is the one who made this confession for the apostles. Knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, he indeed was foreordained from the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you who through him believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Now, this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. So these are just samplings from Scripture elaborating and expounding on what Jesus said about this gospel paradox and how we are to bear witness to those essential things that must be believed and that the resolve expressed of that believing, saving faith is to confess that Jesus is Lord and Savior. Look at verses 32 and 33. He spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. So the gospel paradox is ordained by God to disturb the human conscience, pressing the conflict with the world, the flesh, and the devil. Does that make you uncomfortable? It's one of the challenges I think we have to our faith that we want to make people comfortable. We want to make it easy. We want to be winsome. We want to be liked. But you need to understand, and what's taking place here as Jesus rebukes Peter, that the gospel conflict is intended to disturb the human conscience. We have to trust the Spirit of God and the conflict and the offense of the cross to disturb the human conscience. Beloved, do you believe sin against a holy God is disturbing? Sin against a holy God should disturb us. Peter's private presumption against God's ordained will and purpose for Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection seems humanly compassionate and God-honoring, doesn't it? Do you feel a little bit for Peter here? How Peter was kind of blindsided. Whoa, that's not what I was expecting. No, Lord Jesus, that can't be true of you. I don't even think Peter fully grasped his confusion. And sometimes we jump on Peter for his presumption. But I do believe there was a motivation here that seemed so good in terms of human compassion. Are you disturbed at what Jesus suffered? It's disturbing, isn't it? 
I, I think we also have to understand that preaching the gospel and preaching the offense of the cross is not simply going through a passion narrative every time. But we can't shy away from that passion narrative and from the brutality and from the, the unsettling things that meet us and are described to us in Scripture. And there is human compassion. I think I learned from this passage and from the balance of Scripture what was necessary for Jesus to suffer. But, beloved, it crushes me knowing that this is what sin does. This is what sin required. This is why Peter later says, not with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of of Jesus. Our sins have been forgiven. And so we're not excusing Peter here because Jesus rebukes him. But perhaps there is some measure of understanding how the gospel paradox is disturbing. But it must be because of the reality of sin and God's holiness. So Peter's private presumption motivated by human compassion and worldly expectations, is nonetheless influenced by the tactics of Satan's deception. That's why Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. Peter wasn't possessed of the devil. This was not about demon possession. We've had other cases of that. There's questions about whether Peter was regenerate at this point. Why not? There's no indication that Peter wasn't regenerate, but that Peter was unschooled that Peter had not grasped and fully understood what Jesus was beginning to reveal more more carefully and was telling them, don't tell anybody about this, Peter, your confession that I am the Christ, because there's more to it that you have to understand in terms of this gospel paradox that is disturbing to the world and disturbing to to you. And so he says, you're under the influence, not of the things of God, but of the things of the devil. Anything that would draw our focus away from the gospel. Anything by which the gospel is not primary and central to the outworking of the will of God. Many questions. I know there are a lot of questions about how we live in this present world. We spent some time talking about that. How do we interact with uh, secular culture as Christian believers? And how we approach and understand the authority of the word of God. But... The gospel is central to our Christian faith and to our proclamation of God's way of salvation. And here is what is going to come more fully expressed. What good is it if you save the whole world but lose your soul? Or can we extrapolate that a little bit? What good is it if we save our city or save our county or save whatever and yet people's souls are lost? You see, that's what I'm talking about, keeping the gospel primary and focused. Not that there are not compassionate care and concern as the balance of Scripture teaches us, but that it is clearly and consciously carried forth in the name of the Lord Jesus and the good news that there is something more important, and that is the eternal destiny of your soul. So Peter's private presumption, tempting Jesus did not remove him from public rebuke by Jesus. Did you catch that? Peter took him away privately because Jesus was saying this openly. But then Jesus publicly rebukes Peter because the gospel is not for private interpretation. As Peter 
subsequently learns and he proclaims. Isn't it wonderful to see the power of the transformation and the work of the Holy Spirit in bringing the apostles uh, to that resolution in terms of the gospel paradox by which they embrace it and all that comes with it. And so Peter would write in 2 Peter, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Peter was one of these chosen holy men of God that spoke by the Holy Spirit. Matthew records for us that Jesus says of Peter's confession, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, Peter, but my Father from heaven. Peter was born along by the Holy Spirit, confessing even more than he understood. But he would come more and more to appreciate and understand. And thereby, he says, as I took Jesus apart privately and tried to rebuke him, the scripture's not for private interpretation, not the way I understand it, not my meaning. But no, Jesus rebukes Peter publicly because the gospel is not for private interpretation. So I ask you this morning, do you comprehend the gospel paradox? Preacher, you've been talking about the gospel paradox. Could you just tell us what it is? Well, let me do better than that. Look at verse 31. Let's let Jesus tell us what it is. Um, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man, in his being the servant and Savior, prophesied and uh, promised, must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. That's the gospel paradox. That salvation comes through the substitutionary sacrifice of one who is like us and one who is unlike us. You see, what the blood of bulls and goats could never do, because we're not animals. We are the image bearers of God. And Jesus came like us in our humanity, unlike us in the guilt of our sin. And here's the gospel paradox, that he died. What all the world, the flesh, and the devil would do if they could get their hands on God, they did to Jesus. That's what our sins would do. And yet, Jesus rose from the dead. Death could not keep him. That's the gospel paradox, that through Jesus' death, our sins are paid for, and through Jesus' resurrection, Our sins are forgiven by His giving us His righteousness. That's the message that we can never be silent about. It should disturb unbelievers. And we've got to embrace that resolve that this is what God will sanctify in witness to the Lord Jesus. When Jesus asked the disciples and us who the world says He is, and then again when He asked, who do we say He is? You see, straight talk about Jesus Christ has reached its climax. Not that Jesus is a good man, not that Jesus was socially aware, not that Jesus wanted to relieve the poverty and the hurting and the pains of others, not that Jesus was a nice guy, not that Jesus was some kind of uh, popular guru. No, that Jesus was the sin bearer of the sins of the world. And that we must press that disturbing reality to all sinners, because outside of Jesus, they die in their guilt and their sin. And only in Jesus can our sins be forgiven and we be accepted to the Father in heaven. There's more than this world. There's more than this life. And that's where Jesus presses that in terms of the gospel 
paradox. The solution is scripturally revealed by the content of the faith. What must be believed? And then, by the means of resolve, saving faith, confessing the act of believing, do you believe that Jesus Christ is your only Savior? Predictive prophecy, like all Scripture, is not for private, presumptive, make up your own meaning. And see, that's what I hear today so much that I think is derailing or redirecting people away from the centrality of the gospel. All this predictive prophecy stuff, we get so tied up about the end of the world. And that's not where the focus in Scripture is. It's not make up your own meaning. How many uh, times can people set dates and say, this is when the world's going to end? I saw an article just this week that somebody has divined from studying uh, um, Isaac Newton's uh, journals and letters and stuff that uh, uh, Newton uh, sort of um, uh, casually ruminated on uh, 2060 as being the end of the world. Who cares? It was interesting. I mean, it was quite contradictory because in the whole passage that was being quoted, uh, Newton was saying, that people were too preoccupied with this stuff. And they, this is not where we really need to try to, to go with this. But then he went on to say, but I think it could be 2060. <laughs> so let us not be caught up in that foolishness. Let us not be distracted from the centrality of the gospel. And let us carry on in love and good works, motivated by what's uh, scripture identifies for us as pleasing to God. And this, I call it the gospel hermeneutic, this inter- interpretive method, even in reference to predictive prophecy, terminates in Christ's new covenant fulfillment. And we like that new covenant fulfillment in terms of the consummation and the, and the glory of God that includes us. But you know what Jesus is going to say to us next week? Before we get to that consummation in which we share the glory of God, the promise that we have, there is still a challenge for us living and witnessing to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you may be disturbed. (laughs) Remember, the gospel paradox is intended to disturb our conscience. You may be disturbed about the balance of verse 34 and following when Jesus teaches us about the consummation but what we must be connected and involved with for his will as we live here in this world before we are taken to heaven, before we go to glory, what path must we walk? The way of Jesus. And so the application from this gospel paradox and the fulfillment that is set before us in terms of the consummation to the glory of God involves our living the gospel. And so Jesus tells us what that is that I don't think is much celebrated in our day. So we'll look at that next week, verses 34 and following. Now regarding the good news of the gospel, isn't it wonderful that from the authority of Christ and his word that he handed down through the apostles, We have the gospel displayed before us in this Lord's Supper. 